Galatians 6, 11 through 18, the sermon title this morning is Boast in the Cross. And actually, boast only in the cross. We started with grace, and we're going to end with grace. I think the answer to this question every single week should be yes and amen. But are you ready for some grace this morning? Yes. The book of Ecclesiastes ends like this. This is the end of the matter. We end the book of Galatians today at the end of the matter. We come to the end, the last chapter, up until the last verse, and we get to the grace of God again. This is the end of the matter. And it all comes down to this. This is the big idea and the big questions behind the book of, of, of Galatians. Do we play a part in justification or not? Do we play a part in justification, which means being right with God, or not? Do we get any credit for our salvation? Do we get any credit for our standing with God? Or does God get all the credit? We could put it in another way. Is salvation natural and something within our ability as a human being? Or is salvation supernatural and outside of our abilities as human beings? And when we get that answer, we find out that it's all of grace. It's all of grace. We see this over and over again, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. The grace of God is there for us, and it's all of God's grace from beginning to end. And here's what happens when we start talking about and thinking about the grace of God. The grace of God harms the pride of people. It harms, it assaults the pride of mankind. Grace often even offends Christians. Grace can enrage people. When people hear sinners are powerless to save, and that God is strong to save, it can sound offensive. Oh, how people rail against and question the grace of God. Many of you experienced this in your life, where the grace of God was this distant idea you hear people talk about, but then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it moved from the category of something to be questioned into something to be loved. People rage against the grace of God until they love it. They rage against the grace of God until they love it. They love the grace of God with a little bit of human works added in. That's sensible. It makes sense. It's palpable. But to say that you have had nothing to do with your salvation is offensive to people. And there's large portions of Christianity that want to push back and say, ah, I don't know about that. The grace of God, if you really understand the grace of God, the front door to God's grace is frustration with it. And if you're not pushed through that, then you probably never understood it because it is an assault against your own pride. And then all of a sudden you see it and it's like, oh man, I can revel in that for the rest of my life. That's, that's the awesome sauce of Christianity right there. That is good stuff. Paul takes up the pen in verse 11 and he writes like my dad, text in all caps. <laughs> see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. What in the world is he talking about? We're going to get to this whole passage, but we're just going to start in verse 11. Uh, this is how your dad or your grandpa texts when he really wants to get a point across. Do you see this? Whose dad or grandpa texts like that? Anybody in here? All, when it's really important, I know, all caps. And then I wonder, does he know it's all caps or not? And I think probably... Paul's saying, I want you to get this. 
I'm writing with large letters, and there's an alternative way to view this, because some people think that this isn't Paul trying to get their attention as he wraps up the letter. There's some that's saying that this is a reference to his eye problems, and he simply needs to write in large letters, therefore confirming to them, yes, this is me. You know my eye issues. I'm now writing as I pick up the pen. I've been described as been writing this letter through my dictation. Now I'm finishing it off with my handwriting. This certainly is me. But I think Paul is saying this. And doing the very same things people do when they write in all caps. This is important. I'm finishing the letter. I want you to know the main points. I'm going to wrap things up. See with what large letters I am writing to you. I think it's the former. And then he gets into the rest of the content. Here's what he wants you to see as we wrap things up. We're actually going to read the rest of it from 12 to 18. Is this? It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted... For the cross of Christ. For even if those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. He turns again to the false teachers, and he wants them to know, the church of Galatia to know, that these false teachers are in it for all the wrong reasons. Look at verse 12 again. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may boast or excuse me, they, they not be, may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul said that those who have been causing trouble are causing trouble because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. They want to look good. They want to look important. They want to look successful. That's what they're in it for. They want to force you to be circumcised to attain that goal, importance. And they want to do this so they're not persecuted for the cross of Christ. If you preach the cross rightly, just like in Paul's day, down through the history of the church, if you preach the cross, people are going to be angry about it. There's going to be people that are converted by the power of the gospel because we're not ashamed after all of the cross of Christ. But there are going to be always some that are offended by the same message that saves some. The message is going to go out, the cross is going to come to some, and it's going to be light for them, and joy, and yes, finally, I, I, I see the power of God unto salvation and the cross of Christ, and there's going to be others who are going to hear that same message, that exact same message, and they're going to think, I hate that, and I don't like the one who's telling me these things. If you preach the cross rightly, the world will hate it. John Stott had some amazing things to say about this. It's a little lengthy, but it's so good, I thought, you just need to hear the whole thing. You just need to hear it all. So here's what he said in comment, commenting on this passage. They, the false teachers, insisted upon obedience to the law because they believed that man's salvation depended upon it. Their idea of the way of salvation was that the death of Christ was insufficient for salvation. It was insufficient. That was their idea of the cross. It's not sufficient. It's insufficient. It needs to be supplemented with something else. They said, we still have to merit the favor and the forgiveness of God by our own good works. So their religion was a human religion. It began with human work, circumcision. And it continued with more human work, 
Obedience to the law. Stock continues. Paul challenges this teaching vigorously. He even impunges the motives of the Judaizers and calls their bluff. They can't seriously believe that salvation is a reward for obedience to the law, he argues, because they do not themselves keep the law. We see that in verse, at verse 13. So they know that salvation cannot be earned. Why then do they still insist upon meritous works? Paul's answer is, their sole object is to escape persecution for the cross of Christ. Now hear this. Hear this. It's so crucial for us to understand this. And what is there about the cross of Christ which angers the world and stirs them up to persecute those who preach it? Just this. Christ died on the cross for sinners, becoming a curse for us. So the cross tells us some very unpalatable truths about ourselves, namely that we are sinners under the righteous curse of God's law and we cannot save ourselves. That's the fundamental reason Paul says these false teachers are not preaching the cross rightly is because they want to avoid the persecution that comes when the cross is preached rightly. The cross tells us unpalatable truths about ourselves. You're a sinner and you can't save yourself. Christ bore our sin and curse precisely because we could not gain release from them in any other way. If we could have been forgiven by our good works, by being circumcised or keeping the law, we may be quite sure that there would not have been a, been a cross. Every time we look at the cross of Christ, it seems to say to us, I am here because of you. Because of me. We look at the cross and the cross tells us the cross exists because of you. The reason he is here experiencing the wrath of God is because of my sin. It's because of your sin. It's your sin that I'm bearing. It's your curse that I'm suffering. It's your debt that I'm paying. It's your death that I am dying. Nothing in the history of the world or in this whole universe cuts us down to size like the cross of Christ. It's an assault on human pride. That's why the twisting and the danger of much great grace preaching today that says, if you want to know about your value, look at the cross. It tells you how amazing and wonderful you are. You are missing the whole point of the cross. The cross tells us how amazing and beautiful Jesus is. That's the upside down, manipulated, twisted version of the cross that's being preached by so many today that are popular. The cross tells you about how great you are. That is a lie from the pits of hell. The cross, you look at it and you see, that's what I earned. That's what I deserved. And you tell people that and it's not popular to most. The world's not going to give you rewards for that kind of preaching. I'm here because of you. This is what you deserve. I'm suffering. This is your debt I'm paying. This is the debt that you deserve to die, that I'm dying, and nothing in history cuts us down like this. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, mm -hmm. until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. And of course, men do not like it. They resent the humiliation of seeing themselves as God sees them and as they really are. They prefer their comfortable illusions, so they steer clear of the cross. They construct a Christianity without a cross, which relies on salvation, relies and puts salvation on their works and not on Jesus Christ. 
So these false teachers didn't preach the cross of Christ because they didn't want the persecution that came with it. They didn't want the world looking at them and throwing tomatoes or putting them on a stake. You want to anger people really bad, come at their pride. So Paul says, and John Stott commenting on this, and really what the Holy Spirit is saying is that these false teachers want glory for men. They did not care about God at all. They wanted a palpable message that the world would be intrigued by. Oh, ooh, what's this? We built whole message or models of ministry around trying to get the world to think Christians are cool. These false teachers were in it for themselves. They cared about externals only. They cared about the scoreboard. Look, look how many people we've convinced to be circumcised and follow the law. Look at this. Scoreboard, 15 people circumcised this week and following the law of Moses. Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They are not keeping the law. They're the definition of what hypocrites are. But hypocrites get a hypocrite. That's what they're going to do. They're going to keep calling you out as they do the very things you're doing. And they're going to be passionate about it. And they're going to boast in the flesh. They're going to boast that we got adult men to be circumcised. Look at this. This is how convincing we were. This is how compelling our message was that there are people that are actually, these men are going out and they are circumcising themselves because they think that it's all about externals. They had a false gospel and this false gospel was compelling. Imagine trying to convince a grown, uncircumcised, uncircumcised man who can circumcise himself. It's going to be a pretty compelling person, right? And that's what it was all about for them. Look at us. We're doing the work of God, and we've got the scorecard to show it. 15 circumcisions this week. They didn't care about the Galatians. They didn't care about God. All they cared about was making a name for themselves. And false teachers continue to do that today. It's about them. Recognize me. And Paul's going to say there is a better way. Let me show you this better way. The better way is to boast of the cross rather than anything external. Hypocrites love to, to base their boasting on external things because they love scorecards. They love being able to measure their performance. And so the performance is regularly put out to defend or be the apologetic for the work of God. How often have we heard such terrible things defended by saying, well, there's people that got saved. And the terrible thing was defended because years ago, Perry Noble, I think his name was Perry Noble, yeah, was defending singing Highway to Hell on a Sunday morning service because somebody got saved after singing Highway to Hell. And that was the apologetic. Like, it's okay to come and sing Highway to Hell by, what is that, ACDC? Yeah. Right? ACDC. Like, that's okay in a congregational context to sing Highway to Hell and say, well, people got saved. That shows how powerful and sovereign God is. That he could save somebody through your stupidity and through such an evil song. That's how powerful God is. But hypocrites or false teachers love scorecards because they love externals. And they love being able to flash externals and say, look, this is how big, this is how many, this is how much, this is how well we're doing. Come learn from me how to do it. This is the false teachers in Galatia. 
They cared about externals. Paul's like, there's, there's a better way. 14a, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul turns the attention to the cross, the very thing that, it, that they're trying to avoid because of the persecution it brings. The cross is the power of God unto salvation, yet it's offensive to the world. So here's what's going to happen. As the cross of Christ is preached, there's going to be a large portion of people who hate it. And then others, it's like their, their spiritual ears are turned on. And they're like, there, there's some reason I keep walking towards this message. It's assaulting me. It's, assault, it's telling me that I need something from God that I can't do myself, that I can't produce in myself. And yet there's something compelling there. I see that there's a different definition of love here that I'm getting from the world. I'm seeing that there's something, there's something compelling about this, something powerful about this, something otherworldly about this. There's a love here that I'm seeing that I'm not finding or seeing anywhere else. And Paul's saying, far be it from me. Come persecution, come hatred from the world, come... Go accolades. I used to have them being a Jew of all Jew, trained at the feet of Gamaliel. I used to be set up on a pedestal as a Pharisee of all Pharisees. People looked to me with esteem. Far be that away from me. Who cares? I want to boast only in the cross of Christ. That's what we are to boast in. There is the power. There is life. There is life from the dead. There is love. There is the power of God unto salvation. There is forgiveness. There is a God who's saying, even though you deserve this, even, this, even though this is what you have earned, I am sending my son to die the death that you deserve to die. Remember the old song, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt I did not owe. I needed someone to wash my sin away. Now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I deserve to pay. There's some that see that message and think, that's nowhere else. I, I can't find that anywhere else. I see the glory of it at times in things like movies or redemptive themes where I think, oh, there's something compelling about that. But when it's turned to my pride, I hate it until I didn't. I hated it until I didn't. And I found that there is life. It's not about the cutting of the skin. It's not about the dunking into water that saves. It's not about the good works that we do for God. We boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. That's where salvation is found. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. All is grace from the beginning to the end. Jesus did it. It was an actual salvation. It was not a possible salvation. It was an actual atonement. It wasn't a possible atonement. Jesus really did, he did die in our place. This is where grace, the rubber meets the road with grace. Jesus procured a real justification for real people by a real atonement. And this may be the central area where people miss the grace of God and even the cross of Christ and why the cross can be so offensive, even to those who are believers. Think about these implications. Jesus did not die to make men savable. He died to save men. 
He didn't open up a possibility. And there's a large group of Christians that believe that the cross of Christ was no real atonement at all. It was only a possible atonement. That it made salvation possible and even accessible. But didn't actually save anyone. So Jesus died hoping that people would believe in him. That's the idea of the atonement for many people. But he actually didn't atone for anyone's sins. The power, therefore, of forgiveness or tapping into this atonement is not in the atonement itself. It's in the person's ability to turn and look to that atonement and ask for the forgiveness. And that is not the grace of God. The cross of Christ is so offensive because it actually says, no, Jesus actually died for real people. And your salvation is a chain reaction. It's an inevitable result of a powerful cross. Salvation comes from the cross to people, not from people to the cross. That's why it's so offensive. You didn't make yourself make your way to the cross. The cross made itself to you. Jesus came to you. You didn't come to him. And that is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. It is a chain reaction. For all those, Jesus died for his bride in a saving way. And there's a sermon that I preached several years ago at a conference that I would reference about the multi-intentioned atonement. Where Christ died for the world, every man, woman, or child who's ever lived in a general way. He died for the cosmos or the world to be rescued and redeemed in another way. And he died for his bride in a specific way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself... Up for the world. For her. And if you're a Christian in this room, the reason you're a Christian is because God chose you to be the bride of his son and Jesus came to rescue and redeem his bride. Hallelujah. And because of that, the Holy Spirit comes to apply that work. And there's this Trinitarian unity between the Father, Son, and Spirit. You belong to God because God planned for you to belong to him. Amen. Amen. And when you realize... When you get through that, oh, no, I, I want, I, no, that's why the cross is so offensive, because it says that Jesus actually died for people, real people, and he died for you before you were born, and he died for you even though he knew you would rebel against him, even though you deserve the cross, and friends, Nobody deserves to be saved, and yet Jesus really died to save people. And when you preach the cross of Christ the right way, it's always going to rub people, some people, the wrong way. And certainly, Jesus can save and has saved through faulty understanding of the atonement. Praise the Lord that we are not saved by our perfect theological understanding of the atonement. We are saved by the cross, even if we have an underdeveloped, or even if we don't have a fully formed understanding of all that Christ has done for us. I, for one, am grateful for that because I know that as I live and walk with the Lord and I continue to study the Bible, I'm going to know more about God's grace and what he did for me in the cross five years from now than I do right now. Amen. And I'm not saved because of my understanding of the cross. I'm saved because what Christ did for me on the cross. And that chain reaction busted into me one day when I was five years old. The house we grew up in at 606 Carbon Street, I was able to visit that house a couple years ago. You weren't there, Dad, but me and Mom, and we got to go. And I got to sit in the very place, stand in the very square foot, and I became a Christian. I remember very few things from when I was five. Really, I think that's like the only thing. 
And I got set where I prayed with my parents right in that kitchen. You know, I, that happened not because of anything I did as a five-year-old. That happened because of what Christ did for me 2,000 years ago. And the power of the cross, it was my time. The Holy Spirit came and applied and said, this is the day. The cross is wildly offensive when we understand it rightly. And yet, when the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and see, and as believers, we just we relish and revel in the grace of God. That's why people wrote, wrote hymns like, there's a fountain filled with blood, blood and wrote line, lines like, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And you just sing that refrain of that line that over and over, it shall be till I die, it shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That is the message of the cross. The message of the cross is that Jesus rescued you before you were born. He died to save you, not to make you savable. That's why you are saved. It's that chain reaction. So why do we talk about the cross? Why don't we talk about being baptized or the decision that we make or the efforts that we have done for God and the extreme religious duties that we have walked out in? We don't brag in any of that because none of that is saved. We boast only in the cross, not in anything external, not anything we have done, but what God has done for us in his mercy. We boast in the cross and the cross of Christ only. That's what Paul says. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why are you a Christian? Because Jesus died for me. Amen. And when we talk about the cross, inevitably tied up into it, it's like the shorthand version of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We talk about the cross so much and boast only in the cross because Jesus didn't just stay at that cross. He rose from the grave. He overcame death, Satan, and demons. He ascended into heaven, and that sacrifice was accepted by our Heavenly Father. And there's going to be a day, there's going to be a day that he comes back to consummate everything that he started. And everything that he accomplished. And we're going to be with him forever. We boast only in the cross. Because we boast only in the cross, there's an inevitable result that happens. And this blows the lid on any idea of of Christians in the world being buddy-buddy. I want you to look at verse 14b, by which, that is the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is, there's a result in boasting only in the cross. By which, the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Think about what crucifixion is and about what Paul is saying. This will revolutionize your idea of what evangelism is. Or even the, 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 the crazy idea that what we, what we do here on Sunday mornings is in, in, this is not for a non-believer. This is for Christians. That's what the church is, Christians. And we invite non-believers in. And, and we're not, our attention's not on them. If you're a non-believer here today, we want you to hear the preaching of the cross to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And then join a group of people who are just boasting only in the cross. It's all, about, it's all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done for us. But we're not doing anything up here to try to make things understandable for you. I mean, I'm, I'm not preaching in Latin, obviously. Uh, we're, we're speaking in the English language. But it's really of no consequence to me if you understand everything you hear today or not. I want you to understand that you're a sinner. You've sinned against God. You need to repent of your sins and trust in him. That, that's the extent to which anything is for you. This is, for, this is about the people of God. We come together to glorify God and edify the saints. And the non-believers are invited in to that worship gathering. But we don't do anything we do here, centering anything we do here around what's a non-believer going to think. 
The Bible tells us that non-believers either going to raise his fist in anger and run out of here or bow to King Jesus. And that's what we want them to do is bow to King Jesus. So there's a result. The world has been executed to me and I have been executed to the world. Because of the cross of Christ, as he's boasting the cross of Christ, the world is executed to me or crucified to me and I to the world. There is now for Paul an extreme opposition. It's like the world has been executed and he has been executed. There is a massive opposition in play between Paul and the world. And the world is, the world quickly defined is the way in which non-believers exist that's ruled by Satan. It's the ways of the world. It's not the cosmos. God owns the cosmos, controls the cosmos. He's in charge of the molecules, the airs, the weather, everything that exists. That's God's realm. The earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord and the cattle on a billion hills belong to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord. Satan doesn't rule the cosmos. He rules the world, which is the way that evil people that are not born again think, function, and operate. It's TV, it's media, it's the corrupt political systems around the world. That is Satan's realm. And Paul's saying that they've been executed to me and I've been executed to them. There is now this opposition. Certainly we want them to bow to King Jesus. We want them to love the Lord and we want to disciple the nations. But there is this opposition that now exists. And this is the one thing that I didn't understand early on in ministry. Early when I was in ministry, there was a, a really big shift that was happening. And it was, it was in some ways exciting, but in other ways it was just confusing. Because there were, there were things like the, uh, the book by Raphael Velvet Elvis that came out when I was in college. It's incredibly popular. And, and uh, there was this, uh, this other guy, both pastoring Mars Hill churches. There's another, this other guy named Mark Driscoll. And these guys represented the polar opposites of, of everything that was going on in evangelicalism. And a massive gap or massive transition that was happening. Both had their errors and I slipped into one. Now, the secret sensitive movement that came right before that and now even up into the Acts 29 movement currently today, and all those are great faithful brothers in that movement. Um, how, how much do we hear, maybe me more than you because I was so much in the thick of this in ministry, about cultural relevance? Okay, we heard over and over again, we want to be culturally relevant. We want to be relevant. We want to be relevant. We want, we want to be culturally savvy. We want a non-believer. We're for the nuns of nuns. We exist as a church for non-believers and people that are just done with the church, angry with the church. And how many churches have said, yeah, that's who we're, that's who we're, we're the opposite of that. We're for full-blooded, Jesus-loving Christians. That's who we're for, okay? That's what every church should be for, is the body of believers that are gathering together every week to worship the Lord as God has commanded us to worship him to encourage one another and glorify him. That, that's why we exist. But I fell into this idea that we had to be culturally savvy. We had to look like the world. We had to talk like the world. We had to live like the world. And if that's the idea of like maintaining some sort of cultural significance in our society through cultural savvy, the last year and a half has shown that if you, that's, not, that's the route you want to take, you're going to sell out. You're just going to sell out. Because obedience to God and the preaching of the cross is offensive to the very people you're trying to be culturally savvy with. And if you're trying to be neat, cool, and edgy so that the world's like, oh my gosh, I never knew Christians are so cool. 
you're missing the point completely. Amen. When you realize faithfulness to God, obedience to Him does not score brownie points with the cool kids, there's a lot of freedom there. Because here's what we've seen in the last year and a half. Obedience to God was sacrificed on the altar of public persona. So if going to church is going to offend people during a pandemic, well, we better not go to church. God says, gather all the more as you see the day approaching. But if we do that, God, we're going to lose our cultural capital. And people in the town are going to think we're meanie butts. And they're going to be angry with us. And we could kill everybody. Gather all the more as you see the day approaching. Don't neglect the gathering and assembly. Yeah, but God, we're going to lose evangelistic opportunities. Okay, don't neglect gathering together as you see the day approaching. God, you just don't get it. I, my, my neighbors, they see me going to church on Sunday morning, and they're upset with me. Do not neglect the gathering and the assembly. If you obey God and make that a commitment in your life, there's going to come a point when you realize the world hates this. There is a diametrical opposition that happens between the follower of Jesus and the way of the world. When Paul became a Christian, his social clout was gone. Out the window. Paul, you had everything, man. You're a Pharisee of all Pharisees. You even had the respect of Roman officials. Not anymore. You're walking away from all that. Don't you realize, man, you're not going to be able to go to the bank and get a loan for your house. You're not going to be able to do anything. Far be it for me to boast in anything but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consequences can come. I don't care, but I'm going to keep pointing people to Jesus. It's all about him and what he has done. It's not about what we do. It's not about our cultural savvy. It's about preaching the cross. And believe it or not, non-Christians are like, I think this is how it's supposed to work. Wow, finally a community of people who don't put me at the center of everything. It's an amazing thing. He lived different from the world. He looked different. He talked different. He lived different. He dressed different. Christian men and women in their dress, and women in particular, should dress differently than non-Christian women. We'll talk about this in Titus 2 in the next couple weeks. Modesty should be a mark of believers. For men as well. Men and women should be dressing differently, looking differently. The way of the world was dead and crucified to Paul, and the world considered Paul dead to them. And Paul was not depressed about it. Wasn't sad about it. Didn't care that he got canceled from YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Didn't care that the bank said you can't bank here anymore. All right, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about how awesome the grace of God is. So he gets to the last word on circumcision. Look at this. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but I do creation. Let's get to the center of the argument. Let's talk circumcision. It doesn't matter anyway. It doesn't matter. You're circumcised, great. You're not circumcised, okay? All that matters is that you are a new creation. Here is the fundamental question. Are you born again by the Spirit of God or not? Are you a new creation? Does the Spirit of God live within you? Has Jesus changed you? That's the central issue. Because what comes with justification is this thing called conversion. You're converted. You're born again. And then the gavel comes down. Justified by the God of the universe. 
That's the question. Are you born of the Spirit? That's the key. It's like Paul saying, don't tell me about what you know. Don't tell me if you've made the cut. Don't tell me if you're the physical bloodline of the Jewish people of Abraham. Don't tell me about that. If you have been baptized, great, not great. Are you a new person? Amen. That's the question. Are you born again? Are you born of the Spirit? Do you know God? Are you walking with Him? It's not about externals. It's about what God has done internally. And when God changes somebody from the inside out, it starts showing itself in the out. In the outside. It's not about what can happen in the natural realm. It's about the supernatural realm, what God has done. And Paul says, this is the rule of Christianity. It's a rule. Paul's not against rules. He's against rules for salvation. God's not against rules. He's against rules for salvation. How about this for a rule? Verse 16. And for all who walk by this rule about being a new creation, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. This is the rule. You must be born again. If you're born again, peace and mercy is upon you. Guys, that's what the world wants right now. This is so great. In 2020 and 2021, in government tyranny and confusion and whatever is going on, even in Australia, for goodness sake, you can have peace and you have the very mercy of God upon you. Peace and mercy. Where, where's the peace? Where's the, we, we want peace. We want peace. We've got it. We'll tell you about it. You, know, you want to know how to have peace? Bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. Follow him. Then you'll have peace. And the mercy of God will be upon you. If, you have born, if you're born again, you have peace. And then he says, upon the Israel of God. This is a huge theological implication here, by the way. It's a huge statement. For those who are aware of this discussion, this is going to be helpful for you. He says, and peace upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God. He calls the church the Israel of God. Now, this is not a separate group from the new creation. This is a description of that new creation and upon the Israel of God. This is a title that he gives the church, the Israel of God. So who is the Israel of God? We see this in John chapter 8. We see this with John the Baptist. Just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't actually mean you're a true Jew. You, you're very much a child of the devil, Jesus tells a group of Jewish leaders. You don't belong to God. You don't do the will of God. This is not about being in the natural lineage of Abraham, right? Having the right blood. The Israel of God are those who are a new creation. Both Jew or Gentile, if you're born again, you are a new creation, and you are, in fact, the Israel of God. One commentator said this, There are two classes who bear this name, a, a pretend Israel, which appears to be so in the sight of men, or the Israel of God. The pretend Israel are those who have the mark, those who have the bloodline and the bloodline of Abraham, those who are ethnic Jews. That's the pretend Israel. It's not the true Israel. That's not the real Israel. So much confusion today comes down to some of these issues. The real Israel are those of faith, those who believed in Jesus, both of the Jew and Gentile. The commentator goes on. Circumcision was a disguise before men, but regeneration is a truth before God. Circumcision is a disguise before men. Regeneration is a truth before God. In a word, he gives the appellation of the Israel of God to those who formerly denominated the children of Abraham by faith. And thus includes all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, who are all united in one church. Those who have faith have always been Israel. No Jew can be the Israel of God without being born again. 
That is the real Israel within Israel. Like Romans 9 says, not all Israel is Israel. Okay, who's the real Israel? Those who have faith in the coming Messiah. It's always been those who have faith. So those who are aware of this discussion, that's why this year upon the Israel of God is not replacement theology. It says eschatology, implications in eschatology, in prophetic liter literature as well. The church is the Israel of God, the true people of God. There's a national border for Israel from 1948 till up today. That's not the real Israel. The real Israel are those who have been born again. That's the Israel of God. Nobody is going to be saved by being in the bloodline of Abraham. Only those who are saved are saved by the cross of Christ and the cross of Christ alone. And Paul says, let us be done with this. Verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the mark of Jesus. Can we just be done with this? The accusations that keep coming to me that I'm in this for myself. Friends, it's like he's saying, look at me. Look at my body. I bear in my body the implications of boasting only in the cross. I have scars to show it. I have bore over and over again the implications I'm preaching about. I have been whipped. I have been beaten. At this point, he had not yet been shipwrecked, we don't think. He had experienced all sorts of persecution. He's like, guys, can we be done with this? Like, I've got, I am, I am preaching Christ and him crucified. Stop troubling me with questioning whether I'm a false teacher or not. I bear on my body the very marks of Jesus. And for those who are trashing me, for those who are listening to the false teachers that were condemning me, condemning me, can we please be done with that? I've laid it out. I've cared for you as you cared for me. And for those who are causing me trouble, please, let's just move on. My body shows my commitment to Jesus. And Paul, in his appeal to them, his personal appeal is that they would consider, you know what, Paul is practicing what he's preaching. He's not scared to be persecuted for the cross of Christ like the false teachers are. It's like Paul's saying the false teachers aren't willing to be beaten for Christ. But by the grace of God, bring it on. And Paul ends where he starts. He's so good about this. It's no accident. Greetings and benedictions are always important in letters because you tell who you're writing to, and then at the end of it, you say something like your friend, your brother, your whatever at the end, and you sign your name. Greetings and benedictions are so important. And Paul is very consistent with this. He starts with the grace of God, and he ends with the grace of God. And that's not an accident. It's carefully chosen, and he was led there by the Holy Spirit of God. And inspired by the Holy Spirit to include this. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's wrap it up. Paul starts and ends everything with God's grace. He wants us to understand God's grace. It's the message that is too good to be true, the world would say, but it is true. It's otherworldly. It's only found in Christianity. The line that got me 14 years ago that continues to help me today is that we're, we're saved by grace and we're kept by grace. Amen. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, you'll belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, you'll belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ten years from now, you'll belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. 150 billion years from now, you'll belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have an opportunity. We, we walk away from something like this and we take the route of the Pharisees and we boast in the cross and we boast in our name or our works or our power to tap into that thing. Or we walk away with Paul and say, you know what? 
I am who I am by the grace of God and by the grace of God, grace of God alone. Let's pray.